Hey guys, it's Eric here, and I'm back with another episode of the Engaging with Eric podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by Eric's Electrons. Eric is a physics student at Georgia State University, a mathematician, writer, artist, and a YouTuber living in Atlanta, Georgia, USA. Eric posts content that ranges from scientific to political to cultural issues. In this episode, we discuss the concept of being politically homeless and not strictly affiliating with any specific political ideology. We discuss also the gap between science and political discourse and the importance of scientific literacy. We also discuss the critical race theory debacle in the USA and race in the USA, generally speaking. We talk about whether it's possible to reconcile science and God and Eric shares what introduced him to science. I'm a fan of Eric's work and I really enjoyed chatting with him in this episode and I hope you enjoyed the episode too. So without further ado, here it is. Hey guys, it's Eric here and I'm back with another episode of the Engaging with Eric podcast and I'm so glad to say today that uh, I'm joined by someone who shares my forename, <laughs> Eric. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Eric. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, so uh, Eric, I think the first time we met was on Clubhouse. We were in a conversation that I think was about wokeness or woke activism. Um, and I was super impressed by your contributions at the, uh, during the conversation. So I proceeded to follow you on your socials and see the type of content that you put out there. And it really struck me as being unique, considering the climate and environment we're in right now in regards to political discourse. So um, a, a theme that I think I saw from a lot of your content was the idea of being politically homeless. Uh, the concept of not politically identifying with an astringent ideology or an ideology stringently, which it seems to me is quite unique, uh, considering that you're in the USA and it seems like political dialogue is so tribalistic and divisive. So uh, would you say that you're politically unaffiliated or that you don't identify with any specific political ideology, or do you think you change in one direction more than the other? Um, I think it depends on... Uh who's looking at it. I mean, obviously there are certain issues where you could uh, put me into a box of, oh, this is liberal or these are conservative values. But me as a person, I try not to uh, uh, claim a home team. And I, I, I know that as a human, I come in multitudes. So I, I know that at any time I could change my mind and there's not a hill that I'm, I'm willing to die on when it comes to political issues and, and knowing how much my mind has changed even within the last year, um, I, I would never try to um, stick to one tribe, group, political party. So yeah, I, I guess uh, the political homeless label is uh, is aptly applied when it comes to me. Considering how tribalistic the discourse seems to be in the USA in regards to political matters, you know, everyone seems to have a position. Uh, in fact, I, I think it's actually quite antithetical to how we operate here in Ireland. It's like, you know, if you take a concept like government, for instance, uh, if you look at it in a strictly ideological way, someone who falls on the left will tend to have a favorable, favorable perspective of government. Someone on the right, particularly if they're a libertarian, will look at it in a more uh, you know, negative way. Whereas here in Ireland, whether you're on the left or right, we tend to look at concepts like government in a solely practical way. You can find really extreme conservatives here in Ireland who might favor a place for government in their life, whereas you might find people on the left who might dislike the government in some respects, whereas in the USA, it seems to be strictly ideological. So seeing as you are someone who is somewhat on the, in the middle in how you identify and think about things, uh, do you ever get called a centrist or someone who's copping out of uh, 
identification as a disrespect? No, one hundred percent. I've been called it all. I've been called. Uh, I've been called conservative, liberal, on defense. Uh, you know, or, or fence sitter. That's what they say. Um, or uh, you know, someone who's just trying to play both sides. But uh, what people don't understand is, you know these issues, they're very complex. And, and when we walk through them, it's not, it's not easy to just jump on one side and say, yeah, th this side has all of the truth to it, you know? And, and I don't know, I grew up that way where I was like the black sheep in a lot of things, be it uh, basketball for being very, very short, but being good. And people telling me, oh, you should maybe focus on something else because you're kind of short for basketball. Um, but uh, still doing it anyway and really doing great at it or doing science and people were like, hey, like that's really hard. I don't know if you want to jump into that. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of math and I was like, hey, I like math. So, you know, doing that. So I've always been pulled um, by uh, opposing forces. So that part has uh, never really bothered me as much. It's just, uh, I really feel bad for the fact that people limit them themselves so much. That That's what I mostly um, dislike about that type of discourse and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Something about, um, and I'm going to get back to what you said about appreciating the complexity of a lot of issues. Something that I think mm -hmm. you uh, really benefit from that, from what I've seen of your content, that is really advantageous, generally speaking, is your scientific insights. So you're deeply entrenched in the field of science here. Your name is called Eric's Electrons, and you post a lot of content in regards to physics and different scientific issues. And something that I've come to realize recently upon reading more into evolutionary biology is how a scientific perspective is actually incredibly beneficial when it comes to perceiving political matters in the world. Of course, you know, I, I, my background is deeply in like the activist political realm. And if you take a concept like hierarchy, for example, I was taught to define the concept in a strictly political sense and therefore identify the kind of negative externalities of the idea of hierarchy. Whereas once I learned more about evolutionary biology, I was able to perceive the fact that, you know, we are nearly hardwired as, as, as primates to operate in and around hierarchy. And if you perceive some of our primate cousins like the chimpanzee, uh, the idea of hierarchy is not anathema to mammals. It's something that is simply somewhat entrenched and uh, deeply embedded in how we operate it. It doesn't mean, of course, politically that we tolerate the excesses. We have to mitigate it, but the concept is not alien to the human being. And I wouldn't have got to that point if I did not learn more about evolutionary biology. So do you think as someone who's embedded in science that uh, a lot of people miss the mark on a lot of issues because they define it politically, but don't appreciate how politics can sometimes limit your insight into the totality of an issue? Oh, yeah. Um, part of the reason why I got on social media in the first place was to uh, spread scientific literacy or teach people scientific literacy. I wanted people to become more scientifically literate because I think when you're scientifically literate, you're able to make um, more or better decisions just overall, like not, not just uh, politically, not just socially, but in your day to day decision making, you know. Um, uh, to me, science literacy protects you from charlatans. It protects you from uh, fraudsters. It protects you from yourself, most of all, because yourself, you yourself, you're the easiest to fool. And that's what uh, science has taught me. Um, and you just did something that I, I wanted to point out. Like when we 
met at Clubhouse, um, one of the things that I really admired about you was the fact that you were able to connect things that most people wouldn't connect. And when when people ask me like, what is like genius or what 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 uh, shows like intelligence, like that to me shows intelligence is being able to connect things. And and, and again, like your your ability to to jump into science and to connect those things is just great, first of all. But that, what you just displayed is a perfect um, example of why scientific literacy is just so, so important and it can help people no matter what field they're in. And um, that's why, I, I'm, that's the main reason why I, I'm on social media is just to uh, teach people what I know about scientific literacy and then for other people to teach me about the things that I can learn about scientific literacy and how people are, um, and in different ways. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think you're certainly doing that. Um, so many of the things you put out there, one thing in particular, I think it was a study that you shared. Uh, it was about how, you know, our temperament, our disposition, and our psychology can determine our political ideology. And if you speak to like an ideologue about their position, they'll say, well, this ideology, especially the discourse I see in, in America on, on social media or online, this ideology, you know, it's the way it's, it's, the, it's, it's what's going to deliver us to a better society, be it on the left or the right. And people fully commit to it. But it's almost like a religious person who claims that their religion is the way forward, not appreciating the fact that if they were not born into the family they were born into, they wouldn't have the religion in the first place. So, you know, in a scientific context, when we look at people who are politically attached to their ideologies, appreciating psychology and one's disposition and their temperament and about how that influences ideological outcomes in terms of what they associate with. That's what science allows us to do, to see the bigger picture. So I certainly get that from you <laughs> completely. You're able to see the bigger picture in regards to politics and other issues because of science. And I do think going forward, we need to intertwine both. When it comes to political dialogue, we have to be able to acknowledge why things are the way they are. How did we evolve? You know, uh, things are not here simply because of political assumptions, but because of the fact that we are primates and that has implications. So. Yeah, and last question again on this point, in America and discourse, where do you think things are falling from what you perceive in regards to analyzing issues in an anti-scientific way? Do you see any things like that happening? Yeah, I see it amplifying uh, the, the lack of scientific literacy is, is amplifying due to all of the social forces at play. Like we, like we have, uh, politics, but I'm sure you know, like the, the way our politics work is very ideological. It's very cult-like in a way. And, and the way that activists act over here, it's, it's in a way where not only does it serve them, but it serves their, their tribe. So um, we have it to where you can't talk about a certain topic fully um without addressing like like everything so let me do a little quick example so in 2020 the big thing was about um police brutality black lives matter and things of that nature um of course uh, i would say most people here no matter what their race is they care about um black lives like they have black friends they know a black person or they just care about humans in general um I, i'm confident enough to say in my experiences most people do care. Uh, but what I would also say is that there is a problem with policing too, and we could address that as well. But what I didn't like about the discourse that was happening is when, when it comes to 
uh, policing and, and, and stuff, they wanted to focus on race and they wanted to focus on like who were getting shot the most, what were the race of the cops that were doing the shooting the most, all that stuff. But then when it reversed and when it went to, oh, well, why are a certain, why, why is a certain race having um, uh, more interactions with police? Like who's committing the most violent crimes when it comes to this per capita and, and everything. Then all of a sudden race was just like, no, you can't talk about that. And, and that type of intellectual dishonesty to me is behind why um, Americans can't have, or Americans tend to not have these conversations in an honest and productive way. And um, uh, I, yeah, it just, it really bothers me, but it also makes me go hard on like how big scientific literacy is and philosophical literacy, philosophy, and, and the humanities are hugely important here. You know, like we, we need to double down on ethics and, and philosophy. To me, philosophy is like the harness of science. You know, um, it's, it's the beginning of, of what science is. So yeah, um, I'm not sure if I asked your question, but th there's just a lot at play when it comes to American politics and the discourse that happens around it. And it's very hard to get around um, the misinformation, the propaganda, but then the intellectual dishonesty that you see by public figures um, in order to like actually solve problems. Yeah, absolutely. I totally get where you're coming from. And on that point um, of policing, I, it's Coleman Hughes's piece, Stories and Data, completely opened my mind to the reality of, of crime and policing in the United States of America. And I think something that definitely struck me uh, is Patrice Cullors, the former leader of the Black Lives Matter organization. Now, it's important to preface that the movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, means to us in Ireland some completely, something completely different to what it means to a lot of people in the USA in terms of its implications, what it allowed us to do in Ireland. But the organization, Patrice Cullors, I, I saw recently that she's an abolitionist. She believes in uh, abolishing the police. And you know, if we were to comply with scientific data and we were literate in, the, in that context, we'd be able to appreciate how the absence of police, according to study after study, can lead, lead to an amplification of crime. Uh, and defunding, defunding the police is not an obvious fix, fix to that issue, let alone abolishing the police. So it does question you know, one's loyalty to the community. If you are really for the community, are you willing to put aside your political ideology to align with what the science says and do what works for people on the ground? So I, I totally take your point. Uh, but speaking of race, uh, critical race theory has been <laughs> all across the news uh, over the past few months. It's really funny because in our clubhouse uh, discussion a few months ago, we were talking about critical race theory and concepts like wokeness was being uh, thrown around. But I don't think we were talking about it in a way that's being talked, it's been in a way that uh, similar to the way it's being talked about now. Uh, I, I hear a lot of dishonesty and a disingenuous, disingenuous nature in the conversation today. I wanted to ask you though, what your take is on the debate around critical race theory in America right now? Do you think there's hyperbole? Is there honesty? Is there one side that is right or are both sides committing the same sin possibly? I think that latter part was was what it is, and it's messy. You know, it's just really, really messy. I, I see the pro CRT people are saying it's not really saying this; it's actually saying this. And then when you know you pull up actual quotes and then you show them that it is saying what they're not saying, um, then they they change it and they say, well, actually, it means this. And then they expand it and they keep expanding it until you know you can't necessarily come up with an answer anymore. 
And then the anti-CRTers are calling everything under the sun CRT that's not CRT. And then that becomes an easy target for pro-CRTs pro CRTers to, to say, look, this is what anti CRTers are doing. They're, they're calling everything under the sun uh, CRT and they really don't care. They just don't like this theory and they're racist. So it, it's, it's just a very, very messy situation to where we can't even one agree on very basic definitions of words like racism. You know, um, I, I think most pro CRTers that they believe in the prejudice plus power um, definition of racism. And uh, I understand where they're coming from there because I think there's an intersectional lens that they use, um, although I don't agree with it. But then there's the classical definition of racism, which just basically means like um, someone who believes uh, they're superior to another race or having a hostility towards another race. Um, and, you know, so the, both sides are talking past one another and they're not even uh, attacking the, the points that they should attack. And then a lot of them are focusing on uh, character attacks and, and attacking the people around it instead of um, attacking the ideas and sticking to the ideas. So it's getting really, really messy here in America. Uh, a lot of parents are just fed up. Obviously we have a mostly white country. So naturally when um, a lot of the pro CRTers are, are calling white people irredeemably racist and all this other stuff and saying how, um, or, or they're, they're putting it in schools to where uh, white children, for, for instance, have to say like, hey, like I have privilege and I, I'm a presser of you because of this, that, and the third. And, and I'm, of course, I'm being a little facetious here, but um, there are things being done in school where CRT is being used as a lens to and and also the vehicle to to drive these um, practices and that's what a lot of parents are up in arms about even black parents too by the way so um, it, it's just a very messy discussion and uh, these days I've tried to avoid it as much as possible because I just don't see any um, I don't see anything productive happening around it. But whenever I can, I, I, I try to contribute to it or whatnot. Is it is it um, happening over there at all in, in Ireland or no? No, I, we are really in a burgeoning stage right now when it comes to conversations about race. This is why I talked about the differential impact of the BLM movement in Ireland. Like it's been incredibly uh, positive because here in Ireland, uh, partly because of I think our, our history, you know, Ireland has had to deal with a great deal of racism uh, per perpetrated by the English colonial racism, you could call it. Uh, and therefore, there's somewhat of, a, I think, uh, a gene uh, that's prevailing where a lot of people are not willing to acknowledge that racism actually manifests itself in Ireland. And the data supports this too. So we only recently, as a result of the BLM movement, started talking about race in Ireland and how racism manifests itself. So it's had really positive consequences here in Ireland. So I think the dialogue is really taking shape in a positive way and there's lots of potential. But we, we right now, I think, a lot of thinkers are pioneering the way forward. It's only in its early stages. So I'm hoping that we propose a model of race relations that different countries are, are across the world can take from and we learn from the mistakes <laughs> being made. I really hope so. I really, really hope so. Because we need that. that. That's what we need. And I think BLM, in a way, it's like the the first model of anything. It's, it's It has tons of bugs. You know, it's, it's 
flawed and, and you got to reshape things and, and, and revise that the only issue here in America is a lot of the BLM chapters or activists behind BLM, they're not open to being wrong. They're not open to changing their mind about anything. They're not open to the possibility that like, say for instance, defund the police is a bad thing. Whereas I see other BLM activists like outside of the country, they're open to being wrong. They're changing their mind daily. Um, they're considering other things. So hopefully uh, Ireland could be the, the beacon that drives us forward in, in this yeah. whole thing. Yeah, I actually want to stay on that point just for a moment um, in okay. regards to because, you know, I think the conversation about the phenomena of wokeness, you know, people being maybe quite excessive and regressive and how they ostensibly promote social justice. I actually think it's greatly been, to some extent, this is my theory, misdiagnosed by a lot of thinkers. I know the likes of James Lindsay links it to like at the world of academia and ideas emanating from the world of academia. But a lot of the things that are supposedly, quote unquote, woke, regressive ways of thinking, I subscribed to them when I was young to a great extent. And I wasn't revealed to critical race theory or to a lot of the critical theories that the likes of James, James Lindsay might criticize. I had attachment to those ideologies because of emotional appeal. You know, I come from Nigeria and when I was younger, I learned about, I came from a Pan-Africanist home. I learned about the uh, you know, mistreatment of Africa by the colonists from Europe. I learned about American history and about segregation and slavery and Jim Crow and the like. And the common denominator to me when I was younger was that the oppressors were white and the oppressed were black. Of course, this is an incredibly limited way to see the world. And it's not something that I think you carry into maturity. But when I was young, this is how I perceive things. So my attachment to the idea that black people couldn't be racist was strictly emotional, not intellectual and not theoretical. And I think it's somewhat of a natural reaction. Like the end of segregation and historical like ways of thinking, relatively speaking, was yesterday. Uh, the end of colonialism was yesterday too. Like um, it's just really soon. So the natural reaction, unfortunately, is somewhat of a racial one or a hyper-racial one to kind of match the magnitude of the problem. That isn't correct. And that's why I revere figures like Martin Luther King who are able to transcend that hyper-racial perspective to appreciate our common humanity. But I don't think enough space is made in the intellectual discourse uh, for the emotional appeal of what occurred. I, th I think once you can account for that, um, then you're able to move forward uh, and, and move people in a way that kind of sees them, helps them see the transcendental cause that we should be striving towards. So I wonder what your take is on this point. Yeah, I, I, I've never thought about it like that, um, actually, because, you know, it makes sense uh, to acknowledge that the emotions behind it is valid and then the fact that, um, all these things happen, these horrible things in history happen. Um, like that's something we have to acknowledge. And we also have to acknowledge that uh, just because like, let's say for instance, slavery ended, it didn't mean that everything was all good. You know, I, this is where I, I, I'm in agreement with the pro CRT side. Like there, a lot of them, they, they see like, okay, slavery, after that, there were things that, that happened, like such as Jim Crow and all that other stuff that kind of bled into the like everything that's happening today and then all the things that's happening today. And there is still some problems. And then, of course, like in other countries, there are other problems, too. But um, I'm talking about strictly in American history and uh, that that part I'm um, like I, I could understand, but 
where I seem to disconnect from them is is where I guess when we use the, that emotional um, side to 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 apply it to just everything, and then it, say that you know basically like everything that you believed before like like you know that white people are irredeemably racist and uh racism comes from them and it's only them that can be racist and and when they go forth with that type of mentality that's the part that i'm not on board with so um and where i agree with james Lindsay is like a lot of this does start from um academia but what you just said about the emotions being there um and and I, what i think is valid i think we do need to address that more we do need to pay attention to that more i just don't know how um how would you think that we should address that like do you think that more uh discourse is, is the way do you think that we could somehow policy our way into that like how, how do you think we reconcile with with the emotions around racism and stuff yeah well, I think the fire next time, James Baldwin's book, um, it's, and I think before I answer your question, one of the things that I see from my panorama as someone who's an outsider that I think is somewhat lacking in this discourse in America about how to go forward with race is an appreciation for the likes of King and Baldwin. Like these guys are proven veterans. Their ideology and philosophies are what worked and helped to advance the country and make so much progress within America. But yet, a lot of, if you look at a Robin D'Angelo, for instance, she acknowledges Martin Luther King at the start of her book to say that he shouldn't be used as a pawn to make points on behalf of racists. And then she completely oh, tries to lead a coup d'etat against his ideology throughout the thesis of her book, which is just ironic because he is what worked. His philosophy is what worked. But in The Fire Next Time, uh, Baldwin talked about an interaction he had with the Nation of Islam. And the Nation of Islam is probably proof of the fact that the world of academia is not the only contribution to a lot of these regressive, simplistic ways of seeing things. He said he met Elijah Muhammad, the then leader of the Nation of Islam, uh, and Elijah Muhammad told him that, I think you're one day going to join us. You will see that the white man cannot be cooperated with because of course, as we both know, I'm sure, the doctrine of the Nation of Islam renders the white man as a devil. And Baldwin talked about how he understands completely where that comes from. I get it, you know, it's based on how we're being treated, we in terms of black Americans, I get where this conclusion emanates from. However, I simply can't agree because this is committing the same sin that white America is committing. You're criticizing the white God, the idea that white is perfect and the most transcendental point, which is good, but you're simply committing the same sin by replacing, with the, replacing it with the black God. So, you know, it's, it's the same sin and it's not the, way, the right way to think. Uh, so what changed my perspective and my insights was empirical experience, was going out there. And most of my friends growing up were white, despite the fact that I was strictly Pan-Africanist. Every day I didn't live that way because <laughs> I interacted with people from different <laughs> racial groups and backgrounds. And in fighting racism in, in, in Ireland, what I try to propose personally is heightening interaction with people from different racial groups so we can appreciate and see our common humanity. Because then we'll see that we're far more similar than we are distinct. And th that which makes us different, you'll see that most of the things have nothing to do with our race, mostly things to do with our culture and ethnicity and possibly language and other things. So I simply think getting people in the room more and allowing them to hear each other out, uh, I think is, is, is a way forward. But in regards to the complex issue presented in the USA, it's a really hard one to get your head around, but we have to account for the emotional appeal of the message. 
or else you don't make progress. Because I think, I'm sure you come from California. I don't know if you've met anyone in the modern nation of Islam or people who hold similar perspectives or beliefs. Um, like, you know, how, how can you get to the likes of those people who might be on the border by citing critical race theory or academic theories that they aren't even aware of but agree with to a great extent for completely different reasons? So this is what I'd have to mm -hmm. say about the matter. Uh, I, I wonder what your thoughts are on my, my points. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, Daryl Davis, I'm not sure if you know who he is, um, but for the listeners that don't know who he is, he basically is a uh, activist and a person who's talked to many, many Klan's members and, and got them to um, get out of the Ku Klux Klan and uh, essentially like give up that whole life and just stop being racist in general and then join him in trying to get others out of uh, that hateful ideology. And I really think that what you're saying is right because it's working for him. And, and when I look back in history, I, I try to look at what works, you know, like forget the people who talk in the most elegant ways, forget the people who um, maybe had a moment and then that was great. I, I think about what actually worked in history and, and, and what happened during their lifetime to show that it worked. And Martin Luther King is definitely one of those where it was working during his lifetime. He was changing laws. He was talking with very powerful people. He had entertainers behind them that no one knew about because, you know, back in those days, um, you know, let's say for instance, Frank Sinatra, who was heavily, um, involved with the civil rights movement uh, behind the scenes, if, if they were to know that they were um, working with like Martin Luther King or something, it, that could be career suicide for them. So um, what Martin Luther King did work, what James Baldwin did work, and I tried to indulge myself in their philosophy and try to think about that when, when I'm going against that. And I, I really try to reflect. Um, so I, I think what you're saying is right there. And I think more people should um, seek to have those interactions more. And that's why I'm also big on um, having these discussions over the internet. Many people, especially my friends, they, they go, why are, you, why are you in Clubhouse? Or why are you on social media arguing with people? And I'm like, well, a lot of times I'm not necessarily trying to argue. I'm, I'm asking questions in order to understand their perspective and, and why they believe what they believe. And then I I tried a little bit of persuasion, but if that doesn't work, I just forget about it, you know? But I think w when I leave a good impression, I don't just call everyone a troll. I don't just call everyone a racist and, you know, do the usual that everyone else does. It leaves a good enough impression to where they reconsider what they previously thought. And that's why I think what you're, what you're saying is pretty spot on. You know, thanks so much. And I, I think another example, and I'll send you a link to this man's work. His, his name is John Hume. He's a very big figure in Ireland, inspired by Martin Luther King Jr. You might know that in Ireland in the North, there was a, a period of time we called the Troubles in the 70s, 80s, and henceforth. And we had Protestants and Catholics uh, combating and, and fighting each other. It led to dozens and hundreds and hundreds of people dying, unfortunately. Uh, and you had like two people, two groups, they both had ideological wishes. And one man called John Hume talked about how we need to appreciate our common humanity and work towards peace, inspired by King. And if you're talking about pragmatism, too, you know, you're, you're looking at what actually worked. That's what worked. That's what led to peace in the island of Ireland. So I think 
you're 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 spot on in, in seeing what works and what is actually practically effective. So yeah, it's something that I I think um, we need to embrace, especially those who are somewhat you know engaging in the intellectual discourse about race and the like. We have to learn to sometimes drop the books and get out and speak to people and listen to them and what you're doing with Clubhouse. Learn about how they think and how they operate and what we have in common and how we can build on that and work on it. Um, but I also have to ask you what your uh, perspective is on the state of race relations in America, considering what we said, and whether you think there's a disconnect, as uh, we kind of alluded to, between the intellectual discourse about race and also your experiences on the ground with people from diverse communities. Oh, that, that's a complex one. Uh, so I live in the South. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. <clears throat> uh, it's the Bible Belt. It's very religious. Um, and uh, it's, it's a very complex thing. So in my experiences, the race relations socially, like in person, I've been great. They've been phenomenal. Um, very small instances like where there's something, but I'm talking about the day-to-day -day most interactions just been great. You know, people are phenomenal here. Um, I've traveled a lot. I've been to practically probably almost every state except for maybe like three. So I have a, I have a decent understanding of, of, you know, how people are in, in different states. And um, that's why I think that race relations are, are mostly good socially. But then of course there are these rural pockets uh, of America that you will find where there are certain groups of people and, and the interactions between them are very hostile. Uh, I do think that they are a minority in the big cities. It's it's much more liberal and everyone is, is there's more of a social cohesion there. But even in the big cities, there's an issue with like, let me just say this, like in the rural places, there's more of a um, overt racism. In the big city places, there's more of a, of a hidden racism, you know, um, there, there's more of a, of a, I'm going to treat you like this. I'm going to say this to you. Um, but behind your back, I'm going to think what I think like, um, in California, for instance, in Los Angeles, most of the rich people there, they believe in defunding the police. They believe in, um, all this stuff that the BLM activists are, are saying and portraying, they believe that all white people are racist, all this other stuff, but they live in rich neighborhoods. They're super rich. They have security uh, 24 seven. They, they, they're the first people to call police on people. Um, if, if any inconvenience happens, um, that whole um, incidents at, uh, in New York where that, that woman called the police on, on the, on the black guy, um, I believe she was working for some big company and stuff. And she's, uh, I think people out of her social media, she's a left-leaning liberal person. Uh, this is a very common thing where people have, especially outside of the country, they have this belief that people on the right or conservatives in general, they um, are racist and, and people in the South of, of America, they're, they're just these these racists and, and everyone else, they're just not, they're, they're on the side of the angels. And that's just not the case. So I do see um, there being a race issue and 
and then it's not just with white people too, by the way, there, there are a lot of black people who lack experience with white people because maybe they grew up in all black neighborhoods and that's all they know. They're, they're not really well-traveled or that they grew up in very similar circumstances as you where their surroundings was mostly white people and they had really, really bad experiences and they carry that with them to academia where they're making social theories about you know white people and black people or just race in general and there's that issue too so um the, the issues here are very complex but i would say socially in a day-to-day -day scenario it's it's good it's good that people are just how they they are or how you would uh, imagine they should be which is loving um kind respectful and um I don't think it's nearly as bad as like social media paints it out to be, um, but the, but there are issues. Okay, and, and you asked me what I think uh, could be done to address uh, racial issues in America. And I said, learning from uh, the greats who had practical success is, is a good way to approach it. So I'm going to put the same question to you. Uh, from the position you're in and what you perceive, uh, what do you think uh, you'd like to see in regards to the progression of America vis-a-vis -vis race relations? <clears throat> I think what, what you talked about was great. I also think that academia needs to change because I do think that a lot of these ideas, they do start from academia and they, and, and because so many people cite this research, activists use this research and they, they say, well, it's highly cited. Um, these are scholars that are doing this. The, the, this is work that's peer reviewed and everything. But what they don't understand is a lot of times, especially in uh, here in America and social science and um, other fields like uh, women's studies or racial studies fields, is that their peer review system is very much like a um, circle jerk in a way. It's not necessarily as rigorous as like, let's say like a scientific field. And I understand it's not supposed to be because you know, it's more qualitative. It's not as quantitative as like a physics or biology maybe. And so that, that brings us problems. However, they seem to kind of leave out the things that they could implement into the field. Um, the, uh, very basic things such as logical consistency. Like a lot of these concepts, they're not even logically consistent. Um, they apply in, in one way but then when you show a paradox or something, they have something that can explain it away and then no more talking about it after that, you know? And that's not how, that's not how it's supposed to go. If, if something has a paradox, you're supposed to be able to address that paradox and to know that there are exceptions to that concept. But when there's an all-encompassing theory or all-encompassing concept, it, it, it muddies the water. So there's a lot of uh, things wrong with academia. I also think there's a lot of things wrong with activism in America. Um, we, we need more activists, very much like Martin Luther King and, and others, who, who not only come to the table to talk with their enemies, but to not paint their enemies as like these super evil people trying to make the world burn. You know, I, I truly believe that most people, no matter what side they're on, th they think they're doing what's right for the, their community. They th think they're doing what's right for their family and for themselves. 
if we approach this as like we're humans and we're just trying to figure this out, um, that will work. But a lot of these activists here, they cause so much discord and chaos and, and the public discussion is really hard to, to get to the bottom of anything pretty much. And then of course, in entertainment, you have the, the forces pushing against us too. They, they try to push certain ideologies into our, uh, the music or into films or into shows and, and into art in different ways. And, and all of these different corners of our culture where we're fighting these, these different forces that are trying to split us up and, and trying to uh, divide us. And, and I think we need to come together more um, in the ways that you talked about, which is having these social interactions, talking more, debating more, um, sitting down and in person and, and talking about these uncomfortable topics more. And, and we need to, you know, hash it out and, and, and we need to improve these areas. Uh, but I think academia is a big one where we need to improve the most. Um, but uh, also like just having better conversations in general. Yeah, um, that that's that's why I think. Yeah, just just for my the, the Irish listeners uh, who who might not know what you mean exactly by academia, I know you talked about the methodological flaws to coming to conclusions. But what type of rhetoric or ideologies emanate or flow from academia, which you think are problematic when it comes to racial discourse in America? Um, pretty much anything that comes from uh, not anything, but pretty much the frameworks of. Sociolo sociology, um, if it's critical race theory and then it's four to five tenets, uh, or if it's um, women's studies with, th that's where I first saw the issue. I saw it in women's studies with a lot of feminist theory stuff. Um, Cause I, I followed the atheist movement when I was in high school and I graduated high school in uh, 2008 and um, when I did, I saw feminist theory kind of creeping into the atheist movement and, you know, that discourse. And that was very weird to me because I was like, wait, hold on. I was like, these people, these atheists, and I, I didn't call myself an atheist at the time, but I was like, these atheists are supposed to be these like very reasonable people, logical people. And yet they're accepting these theories and these concepts that are very illogical and that not only they're illogical, but um, they're they're very divisive in a way, you know. Like, like what's happening here? And then I saw everything creep up into Elevator Gate and, and all that other stuff. And and when I saw that go crazy, um, I, I knew that there was an issue. So I would say it's it's feminist theory, critical race theory, um, and and other theories that that don't allow for questioning or don't allow for uh, nuance at all. When when the, when something is all encompassing and it's everywhere in society, that to me is uh, is a warning that that is not a credible theory. And even intersectionality, I think intersectionality is very helpful because, like, let's say for instance, you as a <clears throat> as a black Irishman experience things different from like, let's say uh, a black woman or something. Like I understand how the intersections of those different identities could um, allow for a different experience. So therefore 
intersectionality as a theory, it, it seems to make sense, but the, there's other implications in that theory and, and many others such as critical race theory where it goes too far and, and I guess um, being too rigid and how we think about people and how we think about humans. And it doesn't allow us to ask more questions. And that's the reason why in academia, um, I think we need to focus there more than we're focusing now, uh, more than ever. Yeah, I, 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 logically speaking, I, I certainly am too a fan of intersectionality. I think logically it's, it's an amazing, it's a beautiful idea. And I think it's the closest thing I've heard from rhetoric about race to uh, not as a theory, but simply logically speaking, uh, the closest thing to an approach that you know adequately attempts to capture the complexity of the human being, because realistically, in practice, we're infinitely intersectional. <laughs> so many different things that contribute to who we are and how we are and how we navigate our lives. But uh, I'll concede in saying that I haven't engaged in many texts related to feminist theory. Uh, and I've only read a bit about uh, critical race theory, Richard Delgado's book. Um, I'm not finished it yet, though. So we, we've seen a lot about anti-racism um, kind of in the media in the United States of America. And something that is quite apparent to me is the fact that anti-racism seems to be somewhat of a loaded term in political discourse in America. You know, uh, you, know you hear a lot, especially in the hype of the kind of CRT debacle, a lot of people talking about how either they're for diversity, inclusion, in, inclusion and equity, trainings are against those trainings and here in Ireland when it comes to such trainings we take those terms literally diversity we see it as an appreciation for people's differences inclusion we see it as you know allowing people to participate in things regardless of where they come from and equality we see that as an appreciation for things like our common humanity and for principles like fairness so when we hear people say and uh, we're against such trainings a lot of people in Ireland I think they they, they, they see it as people criticizing the terms literally but I know from following the discourse but the, that there's a, a hidden message, a clandestine implication when it comes to the use of these terms, it seems. So in that light, you know, what do you think of the approach to equality, diversity, and inclusivity in America right now, and anti-racism, generally speaking? Uh, and would you like to see any changes in how things are being operated at this time? My views on diversity, inclusion, and equity training and, and all that that's going on around that is um, I love what America has done in terms of how uh, certain laws have been changed in order to include more people, to allow for more equity, and to allow um, equality. But most of these movements now, they're, they're reaching a point to where instead of uh, equality of opportunity or equality of fairness and, and things like that. They want an equality of outcome. And again, this starts from academia and the concepts and how it is. Uh, Kindy, who's, who's uh, the popularizer of anti-racism, he in particular is all about, um, you know, being outcome obsessed and any outcome that doesn't favor his preferred group, which is usually black, is looked at as an issue, is looked at as a problem. And, and that has not only plagued academia, but it's also plagued just any public figure or any side and in general when it comes to politics. I mean, I see people on the right doing this when it comes to the pandemic too, but um, 
it just gets really, really messy when, when we only focus on outcomes. There's no way that you could look at an outcome and, and, and automatically say that's racism, that's this, that's that. You have to have all factors and, and consider all factors at play. You have to compare it not only uh, city to city, but state to state and country to country and see why things are different in different places. And then you have to also consider the fact that in a free market or, or in a merit-based system, there's always going to be uh, disparities. The, the disparity will exist because everything is not supposed to be equal. And that is kind of what we were talking about earlier um, in terms of like intersectionality and um, feminist theory. There's always something more hidden behind it. That, and that's why people are um, in disagreement with it. It's not necessarily the 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 first definition, you know, being like, let's say, for instance, anti-racism. Um, most people, I would say, are against being racist, uh, especially like here in America. They, they, they agree that it's bad to treat someone um, of a certain race uh, in, a, in a negative way because of their race. The, the issue comes when anti-racism is, is defined in a way that Kennedy defines it and and the tenets that comes with that and how it also connects with feminist theory it also connects with um intersectionality just in general and and all that other stuff so um i, I just see i wish that these efforts of diversity inclusion and uh, equity they stuck to what it's actually supposed to be for and in terms of like let's say for instance making work environments uh, more inclusive for women, you know, making it less hostile for people who are different in general, uh, making access easier for disabled people, things of that nature. That's something that we should uh, be for. But when it goes to, oh, we need X amount of disabled people here. We need X amount of uh, uh, gay people here. We need X amount of black people here. Then to others, especially here in America, since we have a mostly white population, what it looks like is anti-racism really means anti-white or diversity means less white people. And that's what it's kind of boiled down to in, in a lot of these spaces. So once we can get to a place where the not only are the concepts more concrete and, and um, they don't play like these mental gym, gymnastics games, but also that we're not so outcome success, I mean, obsess. Um, I think that these efforts will work and then they will benefit people. But what we've seen so far, the implicit bias training, diversity training, those those things are just not working here. You know, maybe they're working elsewhere, but they're, they're not working here. So I'm, I'm really um, skeptical of, of those things. Although I do see it, um, I do see uh, a purpose in them, uh, more so for like women, uh, because you know women face sexual harassment disproportionately, all this other stuff, and in the workplace and in different ways. Um, but when it comes to race, I, it's it's really hard for me to find really good examples of it working. Yeah, yeah, I totally hear you. Uh, again, I think that the interpretation of such trainings in Ireland is radically different, partially because of our own experiences with topics like race. So 
Uh, I think we, again, back to what has been stated pre previously, we predicated more so on issues pertaining to racism and also outcomes that we want to achieve in regards to race relations. Whereas in America, what I see from the likes of Kendi is an ideological interpretation of terms like anti-racism, which actually, to some extent, distorts the literal definition um, so that if you oppose the ideological interpretation, it actually looks like you're opposing the banner used to cloak the interpretation, which is anti-racism, which can lead to a plethora, multiplicity of so many other issues in regards to discourse, but also divisiveness too. So it's really fascinating. And I could ask you so much on the subject, but uh, just for the sake of time, I want to move on to the next subject. Of course, again, you're you're deeply steeped in science and you know your content is predicated on science and you know you operate within the field of science academically speaking so i have to ask you about your perspectives on god and religion uh, i think over the past year i've read a lot of texts from the new atheist uh for those who don't know it's it's a movement uh, of like intellectual atheistic intellectuals i think it culminated at the beginning of the 21st century and it's all figures criticizing leading a tirade i would say against religion so i read the god delusion last year recently finished God is Not Great from Hitchens and also Letter to a Christian Nation from Harris and I've watched practically all the debates at this point. Um, so I come from a you know a Christian background per se and in terms of my philosophical disposition I greatly sympathize with the philosophy of Christianity but my mind is open to a lot of different religious contributions. Stoicism has greatly influenced me too and I'm of the belief that we can reconcile God and religion. I, I subscribe to Stephen Jay Golden's idea of separate magisterium. But of course, you operate in science and you actually said that you were involved with atheist society. So I wonder what your perspective is, firstly, on whether we can reconcile God and science and also on the new atheist movement. Oh, wow. Um, I, I don't know if we can reconcile science and, and religion. I, I think as, as socially, we can. I think socially, we can as long as the government um, can protect individuals of both sides. And that's usually a, a more secular government, you know, because when we have a religious government in different places of the world, atheists aren't allowed to be atheists, like uh, outwardly in public. So, you know, we've tried that. We, we've seen centuries and centuries of, uh, of persecution of uh religious people against even religious people just of different religions and within the same religions but different sects so i'm i'm not sure if we can reconcile intellectually but i think socially in terms of living amongst one another i think uh america has been a great experiment for that and how we can do that without much either religious violence or non-religious violence um but uh even when I was following the atheist movement, I wasn't, I didn't consider myself an atheist. I just thought that there was just too much out there to, to really like, no, no. And, and that began when I was, uh, when I was a child, what I would do is I would uh, read a whole bunch of magic books and there would be some tricks where I'm like, no, that has to be actual magic. You know, like there's no way in the world that they did this and it's not actual magic. And I would read these books and I would find out how to do it. And I'm like, wow. So like, <laughs> there's something behind this. There, there's an explanation behind this. They just do it so well that it, it could trick us. So reading magic books as a child taught me is that, you know, 
the human brain is very faulty. It, we, we fall for things so, so easily. We're pattern recognition, uh, uh, recognizing machines, but at the same time, uh, we're the easiest people to fool. So I, I would, I would just constantly question things and I would, I would question because I grew up in a Christian uh, household too and Christian people all around me, Catholic people too. Um, I have uh, Muslim family members, uh, I have Jewish people I know and love dearly, like the, all types of people in California, you, you get it all pretty much, you know, you get the really uh, hippie secular religious type of uh, people too. So I was just exposed to so much at a young age. It just, I saw the common thread and then it made me research a whole bunch of things regarding about, you know, where religion came from, the oldest religions, and then how many borrowed from those religions. And um, it led me to, you know, when I actually started studying this in school, started studying physics and the world in school, um, it led me to a more agnostic position. Uh, and, and that's just where I stand with all this is like, I, I just don't know, you know, um, uh, a religious person made a really good point that they believe that some atheists are basically where they are at because they believe that um, before the, the universe was the universe that there was like absolutely nothing and, and all the other stuff. And then, you know, uh, a religious person believes God was the start of the universe. And before that, like there's no before that, or there was just nothing. So it's very similar stance, but the, the problem there is of course, like when, when a scientist looks at like the big bang and, and the observations that we know that the big bang has happened, we don't say, okay, the big bang was it. And that's all that ever was. That's all there ever will be. And, we stopped questioning. No, we, we question like what led to the Big Bang? What happened? Um, what role does inflation play into the Big Bang? There, there are different questions that we ask, whereas a religious person stops questioning eventually. And that's what led me to science because I want to find out as many things as possible. I, I want to know as many things as possible. So uh, I, where I'm at today, I'm agnostic. I, 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 I'm, I wouldn't even class my, classify myself as agnostic atheist or agnostic theist. I'm just agnostic. And um, yeah, that's where I stand on, on that issue. Yeah, yeah, those, those are fantastic points. Um, I, first, I want to comment on some things you said, and then I want to get back to the question and reframe it to see uh, what you think of how I frame the question and put it to you the second time. I, I totally agree with you. Uh, and actually, Ironically, I would never argue that religion can fit within the space of objective scientific truth at all. Uh, I, I don't think religion belongs in that sphere. As you said, we've, we've seen what occurred to like gifted scientists like Galileo, who challenged the kind of hegemonic religious assertions that were being made by discovering scientific facts that we now appreciate to be true. So I don't think religion belongs within that sphere. And also, I know that there are particular things that religious folk find it hard to get their head around because of the limitations, the incentive to limit your knowledge. Like uh, religion sometimes implies that this is all we need to know, what's within this book or what's within this kind of oratorical tradition of maxims, maxims, maxims and principles. So Lawrence Krauss saying that there is no such thing as nothing because something actually came from the Big Bang because there are pre-existing particles. A religious person might not be able to get their head around or might be disincentivized. I don't mean to sound condescending. 
uh, disincentivized from getting their head around such a phenomena. Uh, and there are also really good philosophical arguments, though, I think, that favor religion and you know, can favor the fight against religion, philosophically speaking, too. But to reframe the question, again, I would never objectively argue that Moses split the Red Sea in a scientific context. But what I would argue is that there's deep allegorical religious truths within said stories that we can certainly extract to allow ourselves to live a more meaningful life. And I think I've been pushed to this position by Jordan Peterson, his biblical series and his, a lot of his contributions vis-a-vis -vis religion, I think have been moving and emphatic in that he appreciates the purpose of a lot of religious traditions, be it Hinduism and its you know, and kind of uh, activism for, for discipline or, or Islam and the concept of submitting to something bigger than yourself or Christianity and redemption. There's an animating spirit to each religion that is related to allegorical truths about the human experience and archetypes and themes. Uh, and I, I don't think you know, objective scientific knowledge or that field can fully grasp uh, what religious truth represents and is. So in my mind, they exist in separate spheres and can be reconciled in the sense that they both point towards different truths that are linked to the human experience. So I wonder in this context, do you think they can be reconciled or do you think that objective scientific truth can possibly explain a lot of the religious truth phenomena that I pointed to? I don't think that science will be able to explain those things that a uh, religion can, but I do think that it, it will be able to illustrate those things further. Uh, it will be able to add to those things. I think uh, religion is basically like, you know, I'm not sure if I would put it before uh, philosophy or put it as a philosophy, but like it's it's essentially a philosophy, you know, like it's it's something to how to extract knowledge from the world and um that's why I, I do think that it's, it is important it has a whole bunch of allegories and fables that we can apply to our life and it's built on uh experiences from so many different people before us in different times uh so yeah, I think that the, the function of science is inherently different. So therefore, it wouldn't be able to do what religion can do. But I do see, you know, philosophy and philosophies such as like Stoicism, for instance, able to um, substitute for what religion can uh, do. And in other philosophies, too, that, that, that kind of could play that part in what religion can do. And there, there are secular versions of that but I still find that religion does help people um, mainly for the community aspect. That's a big, big one because there are people who, you know, they used to be strung out on drugs or alcohol, or they had really, really horrible lives and believing in something bigger than themselves and pulling uh, so many lessons from, from these stories, it, it gives them that bigger purpose and having that community of people who believe in those very same things, that's a very powerful feeling for someone to have. And that's what lacks, I would say, in the secular form. Um, the, the, that question of what can replace religion often gets asked, like not only within the scientific community, but um, I, I would say uh, in the philosophical community too. And my answer for that would just be just anything that allows for a community to form and to flourish where there are certain things that people believe in that's much bigger than the individual or the collective.
Yeah, no, that's amazingly put. And I, of course, we know the famous proclamation from Nietzsche that God is dead and is, um, you know, pointing towards the idea of the, the last man, the consequences of the death of God. I think you kind of captured that in your emphasis of community and communal comradeship, the need for that when it comes to human interactions. Um, I think I've exhausted a lot of the questions I hope to ask. If I do delve deeply into a lot of what you said, we could be here for, for hours. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to ask you one final question that I think is personal, but I, I'd love to give you the chance to speak to. Um, what attracted you to science? I think you pointed to it already, but what attracted you to science, generally speaking? And what do you hope to do in the future with physics, with science generally? What impact do you want to leave? Uh, big question, but I, I thought I'd put it to you to end the conversation. Yeah, I really appreciate these questions. Um, I would, there are so many things that attracted me to science. Uh, my mother is a big, big, big science enthusiast. Um, she wanted to get into biology, uh, uh, especially before having me. So she always like had science books around me. She always uh, took me to museums. She tried to experiment with me whenever I would uh, make my uh, uh, dirt worm experience uh, experiments or my my ant hill experiments and then all this other stuff so like she she really um, encouraged that in me but then it was just also I think I had a natural curiosity for things uh, I would do things like when I was small enough to uh, hide in the cabins I would hide from my mom and dad and then I would bang on like the the wood of the cabin and then I would also bang on like pots and pans and I would notice a different sound and I would ask myself why why are they making different sounds and then I remember also taking magnets um, from the fridge and my dad used to always tell me to put it back so I would run away from them but then there would be times where I could take magnets and I could like keep them in my room and I would hide them and you know when you put uh when you put magnets together and you feel that uh, uh, that opposing force, that to me was like magic. I was like, well, what am I feeling here? You know, like this is this is amazing. Like, why are they opposing one another? Just little questions like that. So um, that uh, it was also my brief and <laughs> very uh, failing career and 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 being a magician. Uh, when I was little, I wanted to be a magician so, so bad. <laughs> I would read every book on magic. I would read every book on all the great magicians and, and history of it and, and everything. And um, after <laughs> I remember doing like a block uh, party thing where I set up a table and I had my little magician's hat. I had all my stuff around. And unfortunately, I made the mistake of trying to... Uh, I practice on my brother. So I practice on my brother, all the stuff. And I would like ask him like, do you know what happened? And he was like, no, I don't know what happened. And he happened to come to the block party where everyone from the block came and they see me do magic. And I remember after I did like a magic trick, he would point out like, it's over there, it's over there. He did this and he would like tell everyone everything that I've done. So it just ruined everything and I lost all my confidence for it and I stopped doing magic. But the, the, the mindset of always trying to find what happened and, or how things work that, that I cultivated from that, I guess that kind of worked its way to um, like later on, which, which would led me to physics. 
I basically took the very, um, I took the workforce route after high school. I didn't jump into college. I, I worked and I worked for years, uh, lost jobs, gained jobs. And then one day when I was unemployed, I remember um, laying down and I was sleeping and I woke up and I came across this documentary about this guy. He lost his dad at a really young age. It threw his family into poverty. And um, so he would go to the library to kind of escape. And when he went there one day, he found a book on Einstein and it was talking about time and how relativity allows for time travel. And it blew his mind because he really wanted to go back in time and warn his father of his heart condition that caused him to die. So he went into college to become a physicist and he became a physicist and he is a physicist to this day. And um, that story to me, just it clicked for me for some strange reason, because I always love time travel movies. Those are like my favorite science fiction movies that deal with time travel. And I always love like the, the concept of, of time. And I didn't know Einstein's theories delve deep into it like that. Like, I just thought like, it was just something I couldn't fathom like ever. And it was just too complicated. And it just never came across like to, to learn it, but it just clicked for me there. So I signed up to get back into school. You know, um, I went from a community college to a university and it's where I'm studying now, which is Georgia State University. And, um, you know, I've, I've helped with uh, astrophysics work, uh, cosmology work um, and research, mainly with black holes. And um, it, it's been a journey, but my, my right now, due to all of the, the divisiveness, I would say that is in academia due to everything that's happening and, and how social discourse is also just uh, having a, a different mindset in terms of what I want to do. I'm, I'm actually thinking about getting out of academia and, and going more towards the writer route and other things. It's just, I, I've, I, I haven't fallen out of love with science and physics. I just fallen out of love with the environment that academia brings. And then also it, it greatly limits you to what you can do and what you can say until you have tenure and you, your position can't be attacked because I've had stuff happen to me over the internet just through the, the little following that I have, such as like people calling my school and administrators emailing me about something I've said online or, you know, and I had to clear that up. I had people call my workplace because I've, I've worked for a dog grooming place and um, somehow someone found that and they called that up and they were saying that I was saying a whole bunch of things I wasn't saying. Um, luckily, I've had great employers, so they understood. And um, but just just getting to know the academic culture, how PhDs operate, how um, that that culture is, and and the problems I know I will have to face moving forward. I don't find academia an area where I can actually grow, and I could. Uh, research where I want to research, say what I want to say up until a certain time. And I don't have the patience to be quiet for eight more years or six more years, however many long until I get a PhD. And, um, and I, I just don't have that patience. So I'm actually thinking about a different route to go in 
And um, that's what I'm figuring out right now, actually. Cool, amazing. Um, well, I think you, uh, congratulations is due for your story and how far you've come. Uh, continue the fantastic work. Uh, I'm going to have links to your Instagram page and all of your social media accounts actually in my bio. Uh, I think you have a blog also. Um, I link the blog in my bio too, so everyone can find your work. Uh, I hope I can have you back on the podcast again at some point in the future because I really enjoy this conversation and gain lots from it. But uh, yeah, keep up the fantastic work and thanks so much for joining us on the Engaging with Eric podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me and I'm definitely going to come back if you allow me to. <laughs> thanks so much, Eric.